Natalie. Hey, Tara. How's it going? It's pretty good. Beautiful summer day. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well also. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about drums. Yeah? Feeling the beat? Yeah. Um, Our conversation with Zeno was really interesting. We were talking about a lot of uh, samples, our favorite samples, and a bunch of them were drum breaks. Yeah, that is true. There are a lot of like super iconic drum breaks, I think, that have sort of made their place in music history, right? Being used again by different artists. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm always focusing in on the drums and the bass parts for some reason of just, just about every song. Uh, not necessarily the ones that, are, that have drum breaks, but I was thinking it could be cool to talk about drum solos or drum breaks in songs that are our favorites. Oh, that would be fun. Be fun if we could like turn it into a hi-fi game with uh, one of the store visitors. We have any drum yeah. savvy folks in the store, huh? Yeah, that would be cool. Oh, hey, hi, welcome. I'm Tara. This is Natalie. Take a look around. See if you need anything. Let us know. We'll be back here. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I mean it is really an art form, especially when you have very clever creative producers who like chop the beat up in really creative ways. You know, that that's the part I find most fascinating too. Yeah. I'm just always really amazed at the coordination that it takes to come up with a really cool drum. It's not even, maybe a solo, maybe, I don't know, maybe we can talk to our friends in the store about what the difference is. Oh my gosh, look who it is. Couldn't be more perfect. (laughs) Hi. Hey, how's it going, y'all? Hey. It's Sean Zierfoss from Small Reactions. A bonafide drummer has entered the premises. Awesome. Yes. It's so perfect that you're here, Sean, because we were just talking about drum solos and drum breaks. And we were talking a lot about that uh, with Zeno recently, who you actually know because you also work at Criminal Records. Our competition, not really. Just kidding. (laughs) It's all love. We love Criminal Records. Yeah, I do. I I recall talking to Zeno quite a bit one-on-one about drums, his wealth of hip hop knowledge and just, I mean, music in general uh, runs pretty deep. So the conversations are interesting. And in fact, I was in the store, I think when you guys were talking about that and I was kind of eavesdropping. So, um, (laughs) so yeah, I I remember that conversation that you all had with him as well. (laughs) Yeah, it was a fun one. Well, so what is the difference between like a drum break versus a drum solo or is it, or is there a difference? That's the same thing, right? Um, you know, that's a good question. I, I often think of like a, a solo as maybe like a longer form piece. You might get more abstract. You might kind of take a detour, a left turn. Like oftentimes if it's live, like the other members could like leave the stage. But a drum break is usually just for a couple bars. You know, we talk about the amen break because that's just, it's just a few bars. It's not like a, a whole solo. And I guess it's, nobody else is playing, so it might count as a, as a solo. But, you know, it's more of a break because it's tight, it's crisp. It's for a certain number of bars, I guess. You know, for me, I think it's, I think the more ambiguous terminology for me is the difference between a drum break and like a drum fill sometimes maybe all three of those things together but sometimes like an extended fill like that that could be considered a drum break I don't know there's a lot of overlap I think in those those three concepts right right yeah yeah agreed yeah like that song no aloha by the breeders 
has mm. such a cool, multiple cool drum fills in it. I love it so mm-hmm. much. And every time I hear the drum, I'm like, I do the air drum and I never am playing the right drums in the air, but I always feel very cool doing it. Yeah, it is. Uh, I don't know. Drums are fun. I mean, I'm, I'm as a drummer, perhaps I'm biased, but drums are fun because it's, it's a physical instrument and you could air drum like <laughs> fairly easily. I mean, people do air guitars too, obviously, but like air drumming looks a little cooler and feels a little cooler than uh, maybe like an air guitar, you know? <laughs> I was just thinking about another aspect of defining what a drum break is, is like the amount of instrumentation that's playing along with it. Mm. Um, does the band have to completely drop out and just feature only the drums or can they still be playing and there's just like a significant shift in the trajectory of the song? You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a good point. That's true. Just a lot of a lot of overlap. Yeah. Well, it'd be really fun if we could do top five drum breaks, drum solos. Drum fills, etc. <laughs> would you want to join, Sean? Oh, yeah. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yes. Perfect. Awesome. Okay, well, I think I will start. Okay, so yeah, I made a list of some of my favorite drum parts, drum fills, drum solos, drum breaks, however you want to categorize it. I think these are all pretty epic. I try to not do, I mean, there's some obvious ones in there, but then I throw in, I kind of do this always, where I throw in a bunch of obvious ones, and then I throw in some maybe that aren't as well-known. And I think my first two are a little bit lesser known, and my last three are more well-known. So with that being said, number five on my list is LCD Sound System Freak Out slash Starry Eyes. So yeah, this is from that Nike album mix that they did in 2006, but then in 2007, they reissued it with three bonus tracks, and this is one of them. And it's and so normally their drummer is Pat Mahoney, but I think this song is all James Murphy. So it's pretty amazing that he can do all of these things, and that is a pretty fun drum solo. No, it is a lot of fun. I mean, you can't go wrong with like bells, like cowbells and uh, you know, I don't know, you just can't hear that and like not be like, "Oh man, that's a that's a groove." <laughs> kind yeah. Of. Yeah, it's super funky. I like I like the whooping and the hollering in the background. It makes it feel like a block party, you know? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. It is fun that it has a lot of different other percussion elements to it external to just the regular drum kit, you know. Mhm. So, yeah, have you guys heard this one before? I haven't. No, I, I don't think that I have. I mean, I've heard a lot of their songs and I, I like, I mean, what I like about LCD Sound System is that it's like an electronic-esque band, but like backed by like live instrumentation. And so I like how they kind of meld those things. And yeah, a lot of it rests on on the percussion and they've always been kind of a percussive band. I haven't heard that particular one though, but I like it. Yeah, this one's new for me too. I dig it though. I like I like how it's more sparse. Like there's more space in there, and it it's not like this driving, really aggressive, like straightforward drumline. You know, it's yeah. got some like deep breaths in there that make it feel a little bit grittier and groovier. Yeah, I like that. Mm-hmm. lots of variety. And then even crazier is right after this, it totally switches songs, kind of different vibe. So like I said, freak out slash starry eyes. I think that's the, this after mm-hmm. the slash part is starry eyes. And it's a little bit more of a synth driven kind of gothy vibe. Nice. So yeah, total change in vibe too after that drum solo. All right, moving on is number four, 
and it's from 1969. It is the band The Birds, and it's the song Fido. Actually, this song, how I learned about it is when I was really becoming obsessed with the Beastie Boys after reading their book, the Beastie Boys book, aptly titled. And I learned that the Beastie Boys remix of Body Movin' is an interpolation of this song by the birds called Fido. And that just I listened to it and I was like, oh my gosh, this drum solo is sick. And it's like the only drum solo on any birds studio album. So I'm like, man, they should have done more of this. I've actually, yeah, I've never heard that before <laughs> at, at all. And I, I've heard a lot of, a lot of birds records and yeah, I, that's one that I've, I've somehow like that particular song or that particular solo I've kind of missed. I do know, was this one Hal Blaine on this? Like one of the Wrecking Crew guys doing a lot of the drums? That was Gene Parsons, I believe. Okay. And This was one of their albums where I think it was actually named after a Western movie where they did the Ballad of Easy Rider. Yeah, the Ballad of Easy Rider, which I think they did a song for the movie or or something like that, something related to the movie Easy Rider. And so I think they were kind of hoping to ride the coattails of the success of that. Um, But then I don't think the album ever really um, ended up being very popular. Right, right. Yeah, I love that one. That one's super cool. But I also mm-hmm. just learned about it kind of recently, like I said. I like that one, too, because it's got that that nice, uh, crisp, syncopated hi-hat going, which mm-hmm. I think is a common motif from a lot of 90s hip-hop, you know? Yeah, that's true. So I think you can really hear the Beastie Boys connection in there for sure. Right, right. And also unrelated, I mean, not unrelated, obviously, because like I said, it's an interpolation that... Um, Fat Boy Slim took of the song, but I think it's kind of brilliant of him to to take that song and then use it for a remix of something very modern like the Beastie Boys. Mm-hmm. I mean, you hear you hear it and you're like, how would you? I don't know. I just think that's brilliant. He he was thinking of that song. You know, how did he do that? I don't know. <laughs> how does his brain work? All right, moving on to number three from 1977. Now we're getting into the more well-known on my list. It's from one of my favorite bands who I talk about all the time, Steely Dan. It's the song Aja. This one's amazing. It's Great so thing. good. Yeah. It's so good. You know, he recorded this in just like two takes. He sight read the entire thing and improvised right. the solo parts. And the band was just like, play like hell. And he just let it rip. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Crazy. Yeah. And totally made it up. Improvised everything. Like I said, it's amazing. He crushed it. I recently saw Stilly Dan live. I don't know if that was the same drummer playing with them live. Because um, I think he only played on some of their albums, this guy, Steve Gadd. But even when I saw them live this time, and it was in the f- freaking hottest week of Atlanta recently, and I was so miserable, I almost couldn't really enjoy the show. But the drummer was working so hard, and I was just like, this poor man is <laughs> probably sweating so much. And he was <laughs> playing like that, just all over the place, like Animal from the Muppets. <laughs> I feel like it would have been clear if Steve Gadd himself were on the drums at this show. Like, that would have been pretty incredibly epic. 
Agreed. Yeah. The man is a drum god. I mean, it was epic. I just don't think it was him. I don't know. I don't even know what he looks like, to be honest. <laughs> it, you know, it helps that um, Steely Dan write such awesome songs, but they have almost had like a who's who of like the best drummers play for that band. I mean, you have to be a good drummer to be able to play like those complex parts or like Natalie said, just be able to like sight read and go crazy on uh, just on the fly like that. So mm-hmm. it, yeah, it can't be understated that like, even if it wasn't Steve Gad on stage, they at least had to have the guy or the person able to pull that stuff off True. fairly well to, to sell it. So <laughs> yeah, I think it might be this guy, Keith Carlock. Hmm. Sounds like, uh, anyways, he crushed it on tour. This guy crushed it and Steve Gad crushed it. I said props to you, Keith Carlock. Yeah. And big shoes to fill. Yeah. Yeah. He crushed it too. Next one was indeed sampled and is pretty dang popular, I would say. It's also from 1969. It's The Meters with the song Oh Calcutta. probably recognize that one from Amari's One Thing Mm -hmm. and basically takes that chunk and loops it over and over and over and it's like the beat of her song and it's genius it's so good it's so good (laughs) never gets old uh Sean you know that one surely right oh I think so yeah yeah Yeah. they are an American funk band formed in New Orleans Zigaboo Modaliste 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 I apologize if I'm saying that wrong on drums, George Porter Jr. on bass. But yeah, Ziggy was founding member and notably an innovative drummer. So cool. Yeah, it's got to be neat as a producer to like be doing all this research and digging through all these different records and to, to hear that's to hear a snippet and have it be isolated in your mind and have that vision hit you for like a completely different track. How cool that must be. Because that, that Amory track was huge with good reason. Like it was super, super catchy and funky. I just, how cool it would have been to be in that producer's brain at that moment, you know? Yeah. There's a video on YouTube of Amari performing that song live with like a full band and Sheila E is playing drums. See, that's how you do it. Well, she's doing yeah. the, the like Congo things or whatever, but it's very nice. cool. Still, she's, she rules. Yeah, she's excellent. <laughs> so. Yeah, definitely. Okay, we are down to my number one. And this is probably the most infamous, most famous or at least of our generation, drum part solo Phil, if you will, and his name is Phil Colin. <laughs> of course. <laughs> In the air tonight from 1981. It's been described as the sleekest, most melodramatic drum break in history. And I just recently listened to his autobiography. It's called I'm Not Dead Yet. Highly recommend, which I didn't realize he had come very close to death. Learned a lot from that book, actually. But he was writing in his studio, his home studio, which he had thrown together and had just recently gotten a few like new machines to, to play around with. And at first he was very against doing that, but he was, you know, kind of locked up in his house, uh, feeling feels and working through anger and frustration and sadness from his most recent divorce. And 
you know, he was just tinkering around and came up with this simple drum pattern on the sequential circuits Prophet 5. And, oh wait, no, that's, sorry, that's the synth sounds were made. The chords, those like chords in the air tonight were made on the Prophet 5. And then the drum machine pattern was made on the Roland CR78. And then he just was like freestyling over it. Those lyrics came out totally spontaneously. And he was like, it kind of surprised me because I... I was shocked, you know, the words that you hear are pretty much the same words that I came up with just on the fly. I love that. And it's crazy that he was just fooling around and he came up with this, you know? And then, of course, we all know there's the the whole, like, gated drum sound that they also got from that, where they were in the studio and turned on the talkback option, which then, I think, actually, he figured this out when he was recording with Peter Gabriel. And so then they did that on this record, if I have this correct. Sean, do you know this story? The the gated, you're talking about the gated drum yeah. sound? Yes, yeah. they did. I think it was done first on Peter Gabriel's record. And then, you know, Phil took it to, to this record, obviously, to even higher heights. <laughs> so, yeah. you know. Yeah. And they had to do some engineering with that, you know, talk back button to get that sound to use it in a recording manner in such a way that, it, you know, it didn't sound like trash. But then that became like the template for all 80s drums after that, that sound. But yeah, and it's funny because when he was writing this, like I said, was grieving from his divorce of his first wife, who cheated on him with the painter of their house. Genesis was also on hiatus. So he was recording these songs and he says he took a bunch of songs back to the band when they regrouped and he says he sw- he swore he shared this one but the band is like nope nope we never heard that one he's totally lying oh wow <laughs> <laughs> did he forget did he purposely hold that one for himself we'll never know i wouldn't be mad at him <laughs> it worked out the best for us i think so i uh i have a friend who saw him live i don't remember what year he saw him or, or on what tour. But when he did this song, Phil started, you know, singing on one side of the stage. And as the song went on, he slowly and subtly like made his way across the stage and he timed it perfectly to reach the drum set right when he got to this particular Phil. And my buddy swears that it was like the the best moment of his life pretty much because it just like, I mean, it was so carefully choreographed to like, he reached the drum set at that moment when he could do this fill. And yeah, it's, I mean, for good reason, it's maybe the most important drum fill, (laughs) you know, certainly of the eighties, likely of, of all time though, maybe. So it's definitely epic enough to say that. Well, that's it. That's my list. That's a rockin' list, Tara. Starting off strong. That was good. Yeah. Yeah. So, Sean, before you get into your list, can you tell us more about small reactions? Like, what's new? When are you playing next? Yada, yada, yada. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I can. Um, So, Small Reactions has been a band for a long time, but we just put out a record last, last year, last July in 2021. And have kind of been, yeah, just playing shows off of that and, you know, writing some new songs and, you know, to bring it back to drums, like we're specifically spending a lot of time, like trying to think differently about drums. Like I, 
I tend to be a pretty like straightforward drummer and I don't do a lot of fills. You know, the to me, the, the role of the drummer is like the timekeeper, the foundation. But our guitarist in the band is also a drummer. And so he comes from a completely different place and he's like, yeah, just, you know, instead of playing snare on this song, don't play any snare at all or just play toms. And so we're kind of, you know, trying some different things. And so, you know, yeah, we're just sort of uh, experimenting and, and writing for the next record. And yeah, we have a couple out of town shows. And so, yeah, I, I always say we're an indie pop band that's, that's also kind of noisy and, and we write challenging pop songs. And so, yeah, we're just, we're doing, doing all those things, I guess. Cool. So. I really like the title track from your new album called New Age Soul. Everyone should check it out. How long have you been, play, been playing drums? Uh, let's see. I started when I was 16. And uh, so I started relatively late, but I'm currently 36. So I've been playing, what, 20 years now. So for quite a long time. And I always tell people I specifically started playing drums because I, I wanted to be in a rock and roll band. And I looked around in high school and everybody played guitar. Or by proxy, they played bass. And I was like, nobody plays drums, so I'm going to play drums. And I always say, um, just in case I even, just in case I suck, I <laughs> can still be in a band because there's not a lot of us around. So, and that has resulted in me being in a, a bunch of different bands over the years. Small Reactions is the longest one and, and the main one, but I have a, a smattering of, of other bands as well. And uh, without fail, almost every band I've been in has also had someone who plays drums too. And I have no ego about it. Like we often collaborate on drum parts and, you know, it's, it's more fun that way. Group think, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, for sure. Who were your biggest drum inspirations? Uh, so my favorite drummer of all time uh, we'll hear from in this list, but his name is Topper Hedden and he's from The Clash. So he is my all time favorite drummer. And people think of The Clash as like, oh man, it's like pretty straight ahead, like, you know, punk stuff. But, you know, the later they got into their career and into their songs, the more abstract some of those compositions got. And he always kept up, like he always adapted and, you know, he could play a Latin groove. He could play Calypso. He could play jazz. He could play all of these different things and do it really well. But he could also just be a, a rock and roll drummer and a punk rock guy. So he is one of my absolute favorites. I think he's, he's definitely the top. I always credit Black Sabbath with starting my music career. And because I, I heard Paranoid when I was 14 and it scared me uh, to death. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, it was that, but then as I like latched onto the record, I was like, man, this drummer is like, he's awesome. So Bill Ward from Black Sabbath is, is also, he's probably my, my number two. And if we're talking about drum solos, that album does have a song called Rat Salad on it <laughs> and a very Black Sabbath title. And it's a pretty much just a drum solo. So he is also, you know, one of my, one of my favorites. So yeah, probably, probably those two guys I would venture to say are my, my two favorites. Very cool. Well, that's great. I can't wait to hear about your list now. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. 
Uh, cool. Well, let's get into it. I'm going to, as we do, start at the very bottom. So five on my list is the drum part to Manic Depression by the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Um, so I love this drum part because it's a, it's, well, first of all, it's in three, four. So it's like a, a waltz, but Mitch Mitchell, who is 20 years old when he recorded this is just kind of letting loose the whole time. And it's just this consistent, like machine like role throughout the, the whole song. And, you know, Jimi Hendrix gets all of this credit and, it is due phenomenal musician, a good songwriter. And, you know, but he also had good, he had a good band. I mean, Noel Redding on bass and Mitch Mitchell on drums, perhaps one of the best rhythm sections of all time, especially to be able to back Jimi Hendrix. I mean, he's not going to be just out there with anybody. And so he got these two guys in the experience to, you know, play these recordings. And yeah, I don't think it would have been the same with, without him. So yeah, Mitch Mitchell, one of the most underrated drummers, I think of all time. And to me, you can hear it most on this drum part to manic depression. So. Yeah. And you don't even think that like a swing, kind of a waltzy swinging beat would be that very like rock and roll, but it is really cool. Oh, I love it. I love it when pop or rock bands hit that three, four. It's my favorite. Yeah. It's such an underutilized time signature. Yeah. It's really cool. So yeah, I, uh, when I was compiling my list, kind of like, I mean, this might come back to how I approach drums in an instrument. I kind of like parts that are distinct and memorable, but that also kind of serve the song. Like a drum break is, is awesome. And then they serve, they do, they serve the song in a way, but I also kind of like the idea of, of a drum part that finds a way to be distinct within the composition, I guess. So it's kind of perhaps how I, I compiled this particular list, distinct parts that, that still kind of move the shape of, of the song as, as a whole, I guess. It's kind of what I was thinking. Well, Sean, let me ask you this question. So this Mitch Mitchell, this drum beat happens right at the top of the song, right? And it's like really heavy and aggressive. Are you telling me he maintains this energy throughout the entire piece? He does. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, maybe part of it might be that he's like a, a young guy at, at 20 recording this, this song. Um, but yeah, it is like this machine, like drum beat pretty much the whole time. Yeah. That's impressive. I mean, part of it might be the fact that you probably can't get in a room with Jimi Hendrix and not give like every ounce of yourself to that performance, or he could very easily get somebody else <laughs> for the gig. So right, right. I think Mitch Mitchell had to come in here, like guns blazing, able to do this part. And again, it's like a, I mean, it's a waltz in, in three, four time, but he's rolling on the toms the whole time and they sound big and thick and mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just like a kind of a rad, a rad drum part. So yeah, yeah. that he does maintain the whole time. <laughs> That's incredible. So cool. Um, well, I'll move on to my my fourth choice here, and it is the track "I Am Trying to Break Your Heart" by Wilco. And recorded in two thousand. In one and to wider release in 2002. So I 
I chose this drum part because to me, this kind of represents a bit of a, a break or very much a break with what we might think of as like a, a standard drum part. Like we, we think of like drums always having like the backbeat on the two and four to kind of like move the song in, in the direction. Like it's dancey, it's tangible. Like we can kind of, you know, we have something to latch onto. And with this particular track though, that rule book is kind of like thrown out the window. And so Wilco had a drummer uh, from the start of their career until this record. And his name was Ken Coomer. And Jeff Tweedy was kind of pushing the band into like a more experimental direction. Like he began working with Jim O'Rourke to kind of push this experimentation some. And, you know, he was giving, you know, direction to Ken Coomer and he like just like wasn't cutting it, unfortunately. So, you know, American Songwriter mentioned that they they have a quote uh, that said virtually every attempt Tweedy made to steer Coomer toward the percussive sound he had envisioned for the record sparked a fight. So they were just consistently sort of butting heads. And when Glenn Koch came in, who Tweedy worked with in Lucifer with Jim O'Rourke, this was the first song that he played. And to me, to come in to a session with this drum part in mind is is like pretty remarkable because it's avant-garde. It's like off kilter. Like, I mean, you could have played a standard backbeat to it, but Glenn Koch chose not to. So, and it obviously got him the gig (laughs) and he's still the drummer, what, 20 something years later. So this song started his career. It starts the album and it, it to me is completely distinct. I saw Glenn play at Big Ears. They all did their own individual projects at Big Ears. It was very cool. But Glenn played this very avant-garde set, very experimental set. He was putting stuff on his drums, sand. He was he was doing all this stuff, and he was also playing along with um, field recordings. It was it was very interesting. But yeah, he he's very creative when it comes to percussion. Hmm. No, that sounds really cool. I'm not super familiar with Wilco. I certainly haven't heard this song before, but I really like it. It sounds very dreamy. I'll have to go back and, and listen to the full album. You know, Jeff Tweedy's like super interesting. And when you when you read the memoir, you kind of get where he's coming from. You know, he loved punk. He loved avant-garde. You know, he he talks about the clash. He talks about kind of growing up and then he starts getting into weird stuff. He mentions Public Image Limited's Flowers of Romance, which is just, I mean, we're talking about drums being strange and off kilter and jarring. I mean, that record is just, it's like screeching vocals over top of just what is almost only percussion (laughs) on a lot of those songs. And um, so, yeah, he brings all of that here. And, you know, Summer Teeth, the album before this one, they have that song Via Chicago, which also gets like pretty abstract and they have some other kind of experimental elements. But to me, this one kind of represents like a clean break with almost everything that came before for them and then everything that that kind of came after. And yeah, and it, and it sort of starts with this song. So it kind of makes sense that it got Glenn Koch the gig. It starts the album and kind of like starts them untethered towards like other places because the drum part's untethered. So, uh, so yeah, that is, that's my number four. Sweet. I'm adding that to my list. So my number three is Hollow Gallo by Noi released in 1971. Noi began as early members of 
Craftwork. And I think we're just on their their first record before breaking off and like doing their own thing. So Klaus Stinger on drums and Michael Rother on guitar, bass and more. And Klaus plays other stuff too. Uh, he is the drummer on on this song. And what I like about the song is it it is just this like endless feeling beat the the whole time. It is just kind of hypnotic and repetitive. And its only purpose is to serve the song and provide kind of a foundation to just kind of what is just just rhythm pretty much. And I mean, even the guitars are just mimicking a lot of what the drums are doing. So it's just kind of percussion on percussion uh, for, you know, however many minutes. I mean, the song fades in, it fades out. So it's almost kind of like been there forever. It was there before we were listening and it's there when like we're done. Uh, this is kind of an example of of what has been coined like a motoric beat, uh, which means motor skill in German. And so it is kind of like mimicking a drum machine, but kind of like played just by a human. And it, you know, there are a couple crashes, there are a couple small fills, but more often than not, it's just, you know, dun, 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 the whole time. And could you call it robotic? I think so. I think you probably could call it robotic. Yeah. Yeah. It is supposed to sound like a, like a machine. Right. And Kraftwerk does use this beat as well. Like you can hear it in a section of Audubon and in some other spots too. There's a break in Audubon where it's just kind of the drums for a second. And it's, it's this kind of beat. I will say that this particular song and, and recording and the way these drums are played are probably the most influential drum part of my own playing, because it is, like I said, it's just simple and direct. It serves the song, it keeps time, but it is like wholly distinct. And it's kind of, yeah, to me, it's, it's quite distinct with very few elements. Like it's, it's minimal. So I can hear that. Yeah. Cool. Yep, this is another new one for me. Yeah, I didn't know that that was Kraftwerk before Kraftwerk. Yeah, we learn all kinds of things in the store. Well, yeah, so Kraftwerk ex- existed before Noise started, but in like I said, Klaus and and Michael are are two early members of, of Kraftwerk. But yeah, after the first album, they were doing their their own thing. Um, oh, as okay, Noise. Gotcha. So so yeah, it is. But they were in in Kraftwerk, I guess, and were early members. So, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. But just briefly and, but you can kind of hear, I mean, uh, you know, this whole Krautrock scene in Germany was pretty enmeshed with, with one another in terms of all of the bands kind of like branched off. They all worked together on, on different things. They were all kind of members of one another's bands or like super groups or, you know, collaborative albums. This guy, Connie Plank had a studio and served as a producer for almost a who's who across the board for, you know, these, these kraut rock bands, Kraftwerk and Can and Noi, Cluster, Eno worked with him as well. And so like, uh, you know, this was highly influential for Eno and David Bowie really liked Noi as well. And he wanted to collaborate with Noi. And I think they were broken up by the point he like discovered them and like wanted to collaborate. I think they were kind of done, but I think he ended up collaborating with them maybe individually, I think. So yeah, this, yeah. Hollow Gallo by Noi. Yeah. It can't be overstated that simplicity is, is key. So when, when possible. So that was my number three. Nice. So this brings me to number two, which is Tomorrow Never Knows by The Beatles from 1966. (laughs) 
So this song is is super interesting to me because I I think about the Beatles in 1966, and I mean this is uh, you know well documented and well known, um, but might warrant saying here uh, that the Beatles in 1966 are only two years removed from their appearance on the Ed Sullivan show when they are playing what are, you know, their standard pop songs. I want to hold your hand two years previous to Tomorrow Never Knows. It's like pretty, pretty remarkable. And, you know, the song is influenced by kind of Eastern music and in particular Indian music. They got very into, you know, rituals. They all made that pilgrimage to India as well and um, kind of brought those sensibilities back to, yeah, to this session and, you know, thought about structure in terms of repetition and like a hypnotic idea. So this is the first song that they recorded for Revolver. So it kind of sets the pace for kind of the whole record. You know, John Lennon, uh, this was his, you know, every composition is a, is a Lennon-McCartney, but this was a Lennon composition. And the first line influenced by the Tibetan Book of the Dead is turn off your mind, relax and float downstream. So the Timothy Leary idea of like a, a trance-like hypnotic state kind of credited as as the first psychedelic song sort of. And something I I like about this in particular is that it is created from, from tape loops primarily, um, except for the drums. Uh, so it's, it's, (laughs) it's five loops and they are manipulated kind of throughout the song. They were all fed into the, to the board and the Beatles were like fading them up and down and sort of in and out throughout the song. So, you know, what you're hearing in terms of the loops uh, and how they exist on the song couldn't really be be replicated. Like it can't exist any more than just that single time. And Ringo to that was able to play um, this drum part. And it sounds like a looped part. I mean, it could have been almost a, a tape loop itself, but he is just playing this repetitive part, this almost looped part by hand, I guess, throughout the throughout the performance. So I find it pretty remarkable as well. So I've always heard them describing Ringo as like a human metronome. Yeah. And I, I would think that he, you know, he kind of is, I mean, he gets, he gets a lot of crap for being the, you know, the weakest beetle or whatever, but I think that is not true at all. I think he was a fantastic drummer and I think he deserves a lot more credit. He always serves the song. You can almost isolate a number of Beatles drum parts from their actual melodies and vocals and lyrics and know what song it is because they're so distinct. And, you know, Paul would kind of have ideas for how to write some of these drum parts, but I mean, Ringo executed it. Like there's not, there's no other way to, to pull that off except him quite honestly. So yeah, he, he's the guy. And, um, this in particular is, is pretty incredible to me. And Paul McCartney had an early tape of this and I like uh, that he brought it to Bob Dylan and brought it into his hotel room and played it for him. And Dylan's, well, Dylan said, he goes, oh, I get it. You don't want to be cute anymore. And (laughs) which is kind of true. I mean, again, I want to hold your hand to Tomorrow Never Knows. It's like, we don't, we want to be a completely different band. And, you know, the Beatles- yeah, they stopped touring. Uh, they, there's no way to play this live. Um, and so they weren't thinking about playing a song live anymore. And it's just, it only exists on record. So that is, that is it. Why is Ringo the weakest Beatle? I've heard that before, but can you, can you explain why? I, I think he is 
considered the he's considered the weakest simply by virtue of being in the same band with three of the best songwriters of all time. I mean, you have Paul McCartney, you have John mm-hmm. Lennon, you have George Harrison, all three phenomenal songwriters. And I think he's being rated next to them, but it's kind of like comparing okay. apples to oranges. Like his job in the Beatles was to play drums. Like he's not, you know, I mean, he did write some songs, he did sing some songs, but you know, certainly compared to like Lennon and McCartney, you know, often regarded as like the greatest songwriting duo, you know, of several generations. You know, I, I think he just gets kind of short shrift compared to, <laughs> compared to them. And I mean, Paul McCartney himself is a good, I mean, he's a great drummer as well. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's that joke where, you know, they are asking all the Beatles about that. And they're like, well, what do you, you know, is Ringo the best, the best drummer in the world or or something to that effect? And John Lennon goes, he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles, <laughs> Oh, but he was kidding. Burn. I mean, cause he yeah. loved Ringo and like, he's just ribbing him. I mean, Ringo's a fantastic drummer. You can't, you can't be, you wouldn't be the Beatles without Ringo. I don't think and that's so why it's not it's, so much about his skill set as a drummer. It's about him kind of being in the shadow of these other Titans. Oh, I think, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And I, I think it's probably he's viewed through hindsight as well. Now he's just Ringo Starr and his all-star band. I mean, I, I don't know that, you know, other than seeing Ringo live uh, and that being a lot of fun, I don't know that that holds a candle to like Lennon or, or McCartney in a way. So I think he's kind of viewed, you know, when he did front a band, you know, I think he's compared that way, but, but yeah, it's, I think you're right though. I think he's probably only compared in an apples to oranges way because he wasn't the songwriter in the band. Probably. Gotcha. Cool. Uh, So that brings me to number one, which is Train in Vain by The Clash. So this song was one of the, one of, or the very last song that The Clash recorded for 1979's London Calling. And, you know, the refrain is Stand By Me, but it's called Train in Vain because of the beat. So Mick Jones thought it kind of sounded like a, like a train. And so he called it train in vain. And they also didn't want to get it confused uh, with the far more popular stand by me, you know, at least in title. So they called it train in vain. And it was added last minute on the album because I think it was going to be on a flexi for the NME and that fell through at the very last minute. So they just threw it on London calling. And that's why the early versions of the album don't even list the track. And some fans were like, Oh, you didn't list the track because it's a pop song and they wanted to kind of like bury it and forget about it. And Mick Jones was like, no, it just like was so late (laughs) to the album that it wasn't on the album art. So yeah, train in vain. The first top 40 song uh, for The Clash in the U.S., I believe, at 27. And the only one to top it is Rock the Casbah, which came in at eight. And Rock the Casbah, also written entirely by the drummer, Topper Hedden. So yeah, I guess it's important to say here that Joe Strummer always says that a band is only as good as its drummer. And I think that is the case with The Clash. Topper could play anything, the punk songs, the rock and roll songs. He could play jazz. He could play Latin grooves. He could play all of it. He adapted when the Clash were holding tryouts after their first drummer, one of the first drummers, Terry Chimes, left the band. Clash held open tryouts and tried out 
I think they said hundreds of drummers because they were incredibly popular. And so drummers in town like lined up and Topper came in and killed it, not surprisingly. And they asked him at the end, they were like, who, you know, what are the drummers you like? And they expected him to say like Tommy Ramone or some other like punk drummer. And he was like, Billy Cobham is my favorite drummer. And who's a jazz fusion guy. And so they were like, okay, this is our guy. Like he can play anything. And his favorite drummer is the jazz fusion drummer. So topper head in. And this particular drum part has been sampled a couple of times, uh, most notably garbage in the form of stupid girl. So that is my, that's my top five. Nice. Nice. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of, well, basically all of them also say a lot about your own drum drumming style that Mm -hmm. simple, but steady what you're talking about the essentials oh yeah the parallels totally so it yeah i mean all of these all of these drummers serve the song everything kind of makes sense in the context of the song they're memorable parts but they yeah they, they sort of find a way to you know stand out but but like i said do their job first which is to keep time to keep rhythm to keep feel um, and to keep the song like moving and grounded. And, and yeah, so I think they all kind of, yeah, do that first and foremost, which is most important. So cool. Yay. It's <laughs> a good list. Thank you. Yep. Very good list. I'm excited to hear yours, Natalie. Have there okay. been any overlap yet? Oh, or, we shall see. Oh, we shall see. <laughs> no spoilers. I see. Okay. So I took a slightly different approach from you, Sean, in that I made it a point to avoid things that served as the intro. So I tried to make sure you came in the middle of the song. And also, and also I tried to avoid like, you know, really popular, obvious ones, Tara, as you mentioned as well. So here are my five, not necessarily top as per usual, but here are five that I like a lot. Okay. So the first one is going to be Slayer, Angel of Death. And I put this one at number five because you can kind of debate about whether or not this is a brief drum break or an extended drum fill. And it comes in under 10 seconds because, you know, partly why you could argue that it's more of a fill. But the song is super duper fast. So I feel like if we brought it to a more conventional BPM, it would feel like a break. Either way, I think it deserves a shout out here because it's like one of the most iconic moments in heavy metal. And I absolutely love this track. Angel of Death from Slayer's wildly successful 1986 album, Rain in Blood, arguably the greatest thrash metal album of all time, produced by Rick Rubin, whom we've discussed recently in the store, Tara, if you recall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. So we've got legendary drummer Dave Lombardo. Towards the end of the song, he lays down this crazy, like, shin-breaking double kick drum pattern. And then over that, he plays these triplet flams down the toms leading into the final section of the song. And it's just so gloriously brutal. It never gets old. I love it. Um, are you, I don't know if Slayer's like your speed, Tara. Are you, are you in Oh Slayer? no. Yeah. I think it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's great. Yeah. The whole album pick. is just like, it's almost like not even barely 30 minutes long. It's just in your face, insane the whole time. Ruben famously nixed 
any reverb, you know, like and boosted the drums in the mix very purposefully. And it just kind of magically makes all of the instruments sound that much louder, you know? Yeah. So really incredible recording. Uh, there's a cool video on YouTube of Slayer performing the song on tour, I think. I think the one I saw was relatively recent, like in the early 2010s or something. And when it gets to this part, he actually extends that double kick section two or three times as long. And he plays like another drum pattern on top before he goes into the Tom's part. It's wild how he keeps that time and intensity for so long. It's really wow. cool. Yeah, this is really sick. I am, I, maybe I've heard this song. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm familiar with a number of other Slayer songs, but I, I don't recall hearing this particular one. But yeah, that's like, that's awesome. And I'm thinking as, you know, we're kind of talking about this now, like these drum breaks often do you know, a good drum break often resides on like the toms and this toms sound awesome. And I guess maybe they're 16th note triplets. I'm not, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that kind of like rolling, I don't know, machine like rhythm is just, I don't know, mm -hmm. it just kind of gets you moving, I guess. <laughs> Makes so. it feel like you're tumbling deeper into Dante's Inferno or something. Right. It's just, yeah. It's yeah, so totally. intense. It just pulls you into it. Yeah. I love it. All right. Yeah. So my number four pick is... Spoonman by Soundgarden. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this is the first single from their 94 album, Super Unknown, which was definitely the peak of my obsession with Soundgarden. Mm -hmm. um, obsessed, obsessed. The drummer, Matt Cameron. So he does this great break in the middle of the song and he includes just all these percussive elements, pots and pans, wooden spoons and bongos. And then, of course, you have the Spoon Man himself, Artist the Spoon Man who's the street performer in Seattle. And he was the inspiration behind the song. And he's doing his spoon and thing on top. And the whole thing is just mad groovy. I love it. And um, there's a really cool video of artist The Spoon Man recording his part in the studio. And Homeboy is going to town on this part. It's really fascinating to watch. The physicality of it. He just doesn't miss a beat. It's really neat. Good one. This That Thank has you. to be one of... If not the only, certainly one of the only songs to ever have like a, a spoon break kind of. A spoon this, break. You know, yes. I mean, it has to be. And it's just, I was, God, I always thought that was so cool. Because yeah, it's just like stuff you, I mean, you're not going to hear that like anywhere else. Certainly not on like, you know, mainstream rock radio where you heard this song. Like, and it was so interesting that that landed there. So yeah, it's, it's a sick break. <laughs> yeah. But this artist, the spoon man, he's like a legend in Seattle, you know, really popular. There's a clip of Soundgarden just hanging out on the streets and they're talking about how you don't find the spoon man. The spoon man finds you. Like he's got this lore built, built up in the city, which is pretty cool. All right. So number three, we've got Lynn Collins. Think about it. And I'm a total liar because this one is one of the more popular ones, but I couldn't, I could not put it on my list because it's one of my favorite songs just in general. So we're going to include it. Yeah. So this is one of those staple drum breaks for drum and bass and hip hop, of course. It was a 1972 hit from Lynn Collins' debut album of the same name, produced and written by James Brown, who you can hear oh. open and hollering in the background the entire yeah. time. Although it's been speculated that Collins actually penned the tune, especially when you consider the hard hitting sisters doing it for themselves lyrics. You know, it's like she def definitely had to have something to do with it. Yeah. But, um, 
yeah, James Brown is back there taking us to church. I love it, especially the intro. It feels like church to me. It's exciting. Um, so this is also known as the Yeah Woo break because we've got Bobby Bird on the Yeah and then James Brown on the Woo. Yeah. I just feel like that Yeah Woo is, it's inextricably linked to this groove, you know, which is what makes it so memorable. Nice. But the actual drum part is the fine, funky work of John Jabo Starks, one of the pioneers of funk drumming. He played with B.B. King, Bobby Bland, James Brown, of course, and his band, the JBs, featured in this track as well. Also a cool note about the JBs, two other members of this band were Bootsy Collins and his brother Catfish Collins, which I never knew. I thought that was really neat. Yeah, this is, this is a good one. So wait, this is Bootsy Collins' like sister or something? No, so Bootsy Collins and Catfish Collins are not related to Lynn Collins. Oh, they're not. Oh. But they are in James Brown's band that played on this track. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And of course, yeah. Rob Bass. Oh, yeah. Just yeah. So, so many. One of the most sampled drum breaks of all time. Yeah. And it's not just the drum beat. It's that, that tambourine too. Mm-hmm. It's all crispy and jingly and crispy. It's really magical. It's perfect. It's like, it's really short. It's only a couple seconds, but it's the perfect microcosm of all things R&B soul, I feel like, you know? Yeah. It's wrapped up in there. It really is. Yeah. Funk. Did you know? (laughs) So this is a random fact. I was just kind of exploring all the different uh, songs that have used this sample. Did you know that this was sampled in the original theme song for Bill Nye the Science Guy? What? No way. (laughs) And I went back and listened to it. Yeah. And you can hear the yeah and the woo in the background. Hold on. I thought that was hysterical. We are plowing through at number two. So, Tara, I also had Steely Dan Asia at my number two spot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. So, I mean, we can't say much more about that. There's a crap ton of indulgent technical analyses on this song. So, (laughs) I'm not going to pretend to be able to paraphrase it all sufficiently or coherently. Just go online. You know, the rabbit hole goes as deep as you want it to go. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it sounds really cool. I think it's great. It's perfect. All right. My final entry is Bob James Nautilus. Oh, have we talked about this one? I feel like we have. Yeah, we have. We've talked about Bob James for sure. Was this in our samples possibly? Was this Daft Punk? I think... I think when Zeno was in the store, I, I heard him talking about this, I, I believe, or I, I think when you guys were talking about sampling in the store, I think I remember you guys. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I cool. do. Yeah. I believe it has been mentioned. One of those jazz tunes that's been a long time staple in hip hop, right? From Bob James, keyboardist and arranger, famously the composer of the Taxi theme song. This is from his 1974 album, One. And the drums here are performed by Idris Muhammad, a major jazz R&B soul drummer. He played with Pharrell Sanders, Roberta Flack, and he recorded drums on Fats Domino's Blueberry Hill. Oh, which I that was oh that's cool. really interesting. It is. Yeah. So this particular track was kind of a last minute addition on the album. It was basically filler, to be honest. Bob James had only a loose idea of the bass line. And he with Muhammad and Gary King on the bass basically improvised the whole thing. It's called Nautilus because producer Creed Taylor said it sounded like the sound of a submerging submarine, which I can totally, totally get. Yeah, there's like... Yeah, the keys. The keys are like spooky and yeah, nautical sounding. (laughs) Totally. And then also I think like in the drum break itself, the hi-hats are especially interesting and add to that vibe. Mm-hmm. Muhammad grew up next to a dry cleaner shop and he said the sound of the steam presser influenced his hi-hat technique. 
And I think you can kind of hear it's oh, got this oh. spaciousness, the spread, you know, this ethereal spread to it. And um, the beat, I don't know how to describe it. It's like he's got this controlled drag or like lag in his sound, which just makes it all feel kind of intoxicating, you know, like you're underwater. Mm-hmm. Really good syncopation, got some ghost notes going on in there. It's just all very subtle, but really effective. That's cool. Yeah, I don't know a ton about Bob James. I mean, besides the stuff that you've just mentioned course. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. But yeah, as we all know, this has been sampled a ton. Um, not just the break, but everywhere. There's lots of iconic little snippets in this song, like across genres, Run DMC, uh, Ghostface Killa, Soul to Soul. Even one of my favorite Bjork remixes, her track, I Miss You, from oh. British producer Doby uses nice. a sample from this. Yeah. So that's my list, folks. Excellent list Those are really all good. around. Yeah. yeah. Everybody had great lists and all very different, except for the Asia, which is awesome, though. I had a feeling you were going to pick that one. (laughs) How could I not, right? Yeah. Uh, Should we do our short list? Honorable mentions? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I had a ton on here. Curtis Mayfield, Move On Up, Extended Version, The Winstons, I'm in Brother, Van Halen, Hot for Teacher, The Beginning Mm. Part, Mm -hmm. Um, sounds like a Harley motorcycle or something. Uh, the Who, My Generation, Perfect Drug, Nine Inch Nails. And I want to, there's more, I, I won't list them all. But I do want to call out the Cardigans, Happy Meal 2. There's a bunch of little fills in that song and they're all just so cool. It sounds like he's banging on suitcases or something. Mm-hmm. Sean, what about you? What's your honorable So mentions? my short list, um, kind of in line with... You know, some of what I was thinking in terms of my my top five list um, can, you know, Hallel You Are is like an 18 minute song where the drums are just, again, kind of kraut rocky, you know, Mandoric beat, like funk avant garde. So Hans Libaziet probably butchered that ubiquitous Bernard Purdy with the Purdy shuffle all over funk and soul and, and R&B, but also uh, with Steely Dan <laughs> and uh, influenced a number of other drum parts. So kind of his signature shuffle, I think, is one that's this sort of all over. Uh, one of my all time favorite beats just in general is the surf beat. Uh, Mel Taylor from The Ventures did it best. So like Walk, Don't Run, do da, 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 you know, When the Levee Breaks, John Bonham, oh, yeah. mostly for the drum sound. I uh, recorded it like the bottom of a, an apartment staircase, I believe, which is how they got that big boom. Couldn't really do it live because the sound was not possible. And then finally, Mo Tucker, I'm Waiting for My Man by the Velvet Underground. I thought she was like just an incredible drummer. It's just the same eighth notes like the whole time. <laughs> and a lesser drummer would have tried to play, you know, a cooler beat or a, you know, more typical beat, but she was like unafraid to just play exactly what would would work on that. So, so yeah, that's my, that's my short list. Nice. Nice. What you got, Natalie? Let's see. I had James Brown, Funky Drummer, performed by Clyde Stubblefield. And let's see, Impeach the President from the Honey Drippers. I'm Glad You're Mine from Al Green. And I had a couple Frank Zappa tunes, Apostrophe and Gumbo Variations. Nice. Apostrophe, Apostrophe had Ginger Baker on it, right? That's one that he, I'm sorry, it's Jim Gordon. I just Jim looked that Gordon. up too. Okay. Um, okay, yeah. Who, yeah, that's, okay. So another English drummer, but not, and that played with Clapton, but not not the same, uh, obviously, as Ginger Baker. So got my English drummers mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a really fun top five game. 
I yeah, it. I learned a lot. Yeah, me too. Um, we should refill the employee recommendation shelf. It's been a while. It's time. Okay. We need some fresh picks. So for my employee recommendation pick, I am choosing Melody's Echo Chamber's most recent album, Emotional Eternal. I have talked about this many times here at the store, but just in general lately, since the pan, the, since the beginning of the pandemic, I really don't listen to much new stuff or I just feel like I've definitely slowed a lot in consuming new music. But this is one that came out recently that I really enjoyed from first listen. So I am recommending it. I, Very nice. Uh, it is nice. Yeah, I, I liked her first thing. I don't think I've heard the most recent one though. So that's it's good. Perfect. It's her third album and I really like it. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's more on the ethereal side and it's just really pretty. This is less of a particular recording, but it's just like an area of music I've been obsessed with lately. And that's going back and listening to all of the banging house and club remixes of Roshan Murphy's discography. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's already like the queen of dance for me these days, but she's got some really banging remixes on all of her various singles from her, you know, recent releases. So just hop on the internet, Spotify, whatever, and check out some of those remixes. They're a lot of fun. That most recent album was so good. I love her. So good. Well, Sean, we know you don't work here, but would you like to put something on the employee recommendation shelf? Uh, Sure. And I think I'll, I'll... Take a slightly different direction and recommend a music related book. And it's In Love With These Times My Life with Flying Nun Records by Roger Shepard. And it came out a couple of years ago, but it's one that I read fairly recently. It's about the much revered um, New Zealand indie pop record label Flying Nun Records and talks about how that got started and all those bands, how they recorded, you know, how he got them from New Zealand to the the world you know being in one of their mo- you know most remote places to like a wider audience was kind of a challenge and and yeah it was a super fun read and he's a he's a good writer and, and you know it's pretty engaging so i enjoyed that read so i would recommend that if i were an employee <laughs> cool cool and we should probably put your band's new album on the shelf as well new age soul go check it out on bandcamp or wherever else I, I will leave you guys a promo copy for the store and you can um, do some in-store play. Sweet. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today. And I think we should close up the store because it's getting late. Yeah. Thanks for stopping by, Sean. This was awesome. It's a lot of fun to talk drum breaks with you. Yeah. Thanks for having me all. I'm glad I got to come in and, and shop and talk. Nice. All right. Happy trails. Bye. See you next time. Store Society is hosted by Natalie White and Tara Davies. If you'd like to contact the show, visit our website at recordstoresociety.com or you can find us on all your favorite social media sites with the handle at Record Store Society.